Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. No, um, I'll, get you, I'll give you advance because we'll go to Isaiah 53 in the message. And then if you can find Hebrews 10 in a translation you like. Let's go with that. All right. So, uh, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it. And giving it to his disciples, he said, take and eat. This is my body. And they were saying, what? Jesus is, he needs more sleep. He's confused. That's, that's not the outcome for our Messiah. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. The shedding of my blood, the establishes the covenant. It will be shed or it is shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. And all the disciples said, what? That's, that's not the plan. What's he talking about? That's not what the Messiah is meant to do. I mean, we've seen countless Messiahs come and they've come in the name of the Lord and they've come to set Israel free and all of them have ended up here. But this Messiah was meant to be different. This Messiah, what are you talking about, Jesus? This makes no sense to us. Jesus spoke in this meal something that the disciples were yet to come to grips with, that as Messiah, He was about to win a victory for all. But it would come through His death. Now, Israel's understanding was that the Messiah would come to achieve two things. He would purify and renew the tabernacle or the temple. The temple always, has always represented the place where heaven and earth meet. In other words, where God comes to be with His people. So that Israel was defined as the people of God because it was the only nation that their God was not a far off divinity being. He came to dwell with them. So He would come and that's what tabernacle means. It means to be dwelling with or to be present with. He came to be with them. So Jesus came because the corruption had come into the temple and whenever Israel rebelled, the presence would leave. And so He came to renew and restore. The Messiah would come to renew and restore and purify the temple. And He would rescue them from their exile and enslavement. The entire story of Israel is one of the people of God who would come and the Lord would give them all these wonderful things to show and reveal to the entire world that they are to be salt and light. And the first thing He gave them were commandments, not commandments to be able to be good enough to have Him, to be good enough to be loved by Him, commandments to live by to show that they were His people. And Moses, their Messiah type, their Redeemer and Saviour had gone to the mountain to seek God and had gone for a little while. And so they decided it would be a good idea that in His absence, we should form new gods and new ways of worship and immediately rebelled against the Father. And this is the narrative of God's creation, His people. 
We go from worshipping the one King God to worshipping ourselves and rebelling from His ways and we get ourselves into exile. We get ourselves into captivity. We get ourselves into enslavement. And so the rescuer God came to redeem. Jesus was doing this, but in a very different way. The way he would purify and enable God to dwell with his people and win the victory over their enslavement was not by leading a rebellion, but by laying down his life. Jesus was the fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah all through Isaiah, but particularly as you come to verse chapter 45 to 55, we begin to see this narrative of God as their rescuer. Isaiah starts in chapter one with the rebellion of God's people. They consistently again would rebel and leave His presence and they ended up in captivity. The punishment of sin is death. It's not the wrath of God, it's what happens when you walk away from God you will become enslaved. And so they were enslaved. And so God promised them a rescuer. But then in Isaiah 53, He revealed what that rescuer would look like and it was not what they would think. To you, Mr. Jono, Isaiah 53, in the message translation, if we have it, all good if we don't, I can start and and we'll catch up. Hey, isn't he good? He's very good. Yes. Okay, how are we going? Okay, good. Oh, that's not the time. Good. Okay, I'm reading the wrong thing. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God saving power would look like this? Who would have known? This is crazy. Let's go on. (laughs) If we can. I'm going to keep reading. Okay. The servant grew up before us. A scrawny, Seedling, a scrubby plant in a parchment field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. I mean, he was a carpenter. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered and knew pain firsthand. One who looked, one look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried. He carried our disfigurement. All of the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. Sin is ugly. The crucifixion was ugly. It was not a nice death. It was not an easy death. It was ugly and it needed to be because the very image of this broken body is what we look like in sin. We think we look great, but we don't. Unforgiveness is ugly. Anger is ugly. Hate is ugly. Bigotry is ugly. These things are ugly. And it was our ugliness that was on Him. It ripped and tore and crushed Him, our sins. 
He took the punishment. Again, not the punishment or the wrath of God, but rather the result of that sin. Through His bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep and we've wandered off and gotten lost. We've done our own things, gone our own way and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on Him. He was beaten, He was tortured, but He didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and He was let off and He did any, and did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul and said one word that wasn't true. Still, it was God had in mind all along to crush him, to enable him to be crushed with this pain. The plan was that he gave himself, he gave himself, he gave himself. He was not killed, he gave himself. The Gospels capture the moment when they came to take him and they said, are you the one? And he said, I am, and they all fall over. That doesn't sound like someone who was taken. That same sounds like someone who gave over his life. I'm getting excited and losing my place, which is what happens, people. So that he, he'd see life come from it. Life. He'd see life come from it. Life and more life. Life, life and more life. Life, life and more life, eternal life. This is the goal. This is the purpose and God's plan will deeply prosper through Him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, He'll say that, see that it's worth it and be glad He did it. Through what He experienced, my righteous one, my servant will make many righteous ones. As he himself carried the burden of their sins, therefore I'll reward him extravagantly. The best of everything, the highest honour, which is why it's so important when we come and we see you are holy, that we don't just get into a religious rhetoric. We don't just start singing songs. We know that song. Yeah, we should sing a long song. We stop and we capture the moment and we say, you are holy. He is worthy, friends. Because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sins of many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Any black sheep here? Any people that are constantly feeling like I'm the one that's in the wrong? Isaiah, again, is this prophetic book that tells the story of Israel's rebellion that results in Israel's exile but would lead to God's salvation, His victory, and this would be done through the sacrifice of a suffering servant. But why? God has used many ways to recover Israel in the past. Many ways of saving rebels. I mean, God even used a pagan king, Cyrus, to redeem the people of Israel. Why did it have to happen like this? Why? Did the death of Jesus have to happen? Why was it needed? Well, to answer that, we have to understand something about sin and sacrifice. Sin 
as much as we in this day think of it in terms of morality and ethics, which it is, it's much more than that. It ultimately is about our rebellion and idolatry. It's where we choose to live not in worship of God, but in worship of ourselves or the things he's given us. This is the true rebellion. And what this rebellion does is it separates us first and foremost from his presence. God is utter life. He is utterly pure, utterly holy and cannot abide or tabernacle or be with anything that is impure or unholy. Secondly, it causes us to go into an exile that leads into captivity. For us, as we give way and walk away from the light, we are overtaken by darkness. When we rebel and follow idols and we give them, what we do is we give them power over us. And this causes us to rebel more and more and more until we are so trapped, so stuck, so enslaved in our own desires under the name of freedom, we're unable to really get free. Sacrifice resolves the consequence of our rebellion. So in the Old Testament, they had two opportunities of sacrifice. Well, many actually, but these are the two that I need to focus on today. One was the blood sacrifice. And again, this was not about God punishing an animal in our place. It was about resolving the challenge of a holy God abiding with us who are impure. See, the only thing that could purify was blood. A life that was given up, it gave up its lifeblood and this blood would be sprinkled on the temple and sprinkled on the people and it purified them so God's presence could get then again dwell with them. But the other, um, the other sacrifice that would come into this moment was the scapegoat. Two were brought, one was for a blood sacrifice. The other, the people would lay their hands on the scapegoat and confess all the ways that they had rebelled against God. And then they would send that scapegoat into exile. In other words, they would send that scapegoat into enslavement. That would be the scapegoat that would take on all the things that had kept them stuck and enslaved. This act was effective, but temporal. And so Hebrews 10 says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins, meaning it can never resolve it fully. It cannot break the power of sin, the darkness behind sin. It can only atone for the effect of sin. But Jesus as the sacrificial servant would resolve the issue of our separation and our enslavement by becoming the perfect sacrifice. So Hebrews 10:12 says this, but this man offers after offering one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father and is now waiting until all his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are sanctified. For sin to be fully resolved, it had to have its grip on God's people broken. And this would happen as it was allowed to exhaust all of its evil onto the purest life imaginable. And in this act, 
it would be condemned and destroyed. Jesus, as the pure divine Son of God, took the place of the rebels. I mean, think of the story. Pilate is bewildered. This man is innocent. I'll release anyone. What about Barabbas, the murderer rebel who deserves death because he's rebelled against the king, the empire, the, the, the Caesar of the time. I'll release that rebel. And Jesus takes the place of a rebel. Hanging on a cross, he ministers to the rebels either side of him. One receives him, one does not. The cross itself was a symbol, a warning to anyone who would rebel against Rome. And in his death throes, he experienced the crushing weight, darkness and corruption of sin that causes our enslavement, our exile and our separation from God, crying out in despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became our scapegoat. His blood was the pure lifeblood that forever will cleanse our impurity and make eternal reconciliation with God possible. Having exhausted the power of sin and death on himself, having won this upside down victory of laying down his life, he gave up his spirit, entrusting his life to his father and said, it is finished. All of this, not because of punishment. All of this, not because that's what you deserved and someone had to be taken. No, all of this because of love. The sign of rebellion has been redeemed to the sign of love. The sign of punishment and death is redeemed to the sign of love. The cross ended the exile Yes, it made peace with God, who we rebelled against. Yes, it enabled forgiveness. Yes, it destroyed the power behind our rebellion. But more importantly, it meant God would dwell with us again. That He would dwell with us forever. And this is why He is called Emmanuel, God with us. That forever now God is here with us and we are with Him. Forever, we who are in Christ, have the opportunity to be in presence with God in this life and for eternity. Isn't that good news? Yes, you may clap. Not to me, but to Him. Today we remember His body broken, His blood spilt. We remember the cross as the means of victory, reconciliation and redemption of the whole world. Man. We look to the cross not only as the means of forgiveness, but the means of forgiveness and the renewal of our vocation as God's people. I think this is so important, particularly for some of you young people here today to catch. If, if you take nothing out of this message, and that's totally fine, just take this. When I was a teenager, I struggled with the thought that if God has forgiven my sins, fantastic. So apparently one day I get to go to heaven, fantastic. What the heck do I do now? Because I don't know about you, but at 15, I wasn't planning on dying soon. What's life about then? 
But if this is no longer about God punishing Jesus and cleansing sin so that we could somehow go to heaven, but rather about God restoring and redeeming our story to be His people, the people that He would dwell with, then maybe there is a purpose behind all of this that goes beyond the moment of the cross, beyond the moment of our salvation. To be His people To be His church, we have a charge to bring His victory of redemption and reconciliation into this world. The cross then is also our calling to live sacrificially. We, His people, the cleansed and renewed temple, bring the redeeming present, not through force or might or argument, but through surrender, through sacrificial love. We are revealing as light His love, forgiveness and hope for all in this new life. In sacrificial love, it is the way we continue the story, the Easter story of His victory as we bring His presence and redemption into this world. It's whenever you lay down your life, you do the very thing He did for us. Whenever you are right, but you choose to forgive anyway. Whenever you look to the people that don't deserve it, they don't deserve your kindness, they don't deserve your grace, but you do it anyway. You are bringing the redeeming work of Jesus into this world. The cross is not only the means of our redemption, it is the way that we bring redemption. It's how you bring redemption to your marriage, folks. You lay down your life. But husbands, they should be honoured. No, husbands, love your wives. How? How? Like Christ, love the church. You want redemption in your marriage? Die. You want to see your life mean something in this world and people to acknowledge that there's something in your life that they need to bring into their work employment, they need to bring into their groups of friends, they need in, then die. Die to self, live for others. And God in His season will lift you up so that you will be a bright and shining light to the victory of Jesus Christ in your life. This is how we change the world, friends. This is how we become a people who are connected to Him and His community, growing to be more like Him in order that we may reach with love. We die to self. We do what our Messiah did. When we go through suffering, we realise, well, He did too. This is our vocation. It's not for the faint-hearted. I'm sorry if that was what was sold to you, that you get to pray a prayer and then there's this simple thing and then one day you get to go to heaven. It's not like that. It's every day you pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow Him. And because you do that, you are changing the very world He came to save. And He will keep doing it and He will keep growing until one day, We won't be sucked up to heaven. One day He will return and renew all things. He will bring a new heaven and a new earth and He will reign as King and we will be His people. Until then, we've got a job to do. It's a very, very difficult job, but simple for those that are simple. Die. I'm not talking physical death. For many, that is a reality. The persecuted church knows this more than anyone else. 
But for us, how, how are we to die? Siblings, I know you annoy each other. I know. Miles, I know. She's crazy. Grace, I know. He's crazy. But, but we can die to self. We can love. We can forgive. We can redeem. Kids, teenagers, listen to me. Please hear this. There are people in your school right now that are rejected by everyone. What would it look like if next term you came and they were the first person you embraced? John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. We know that God has loved because he laid down his life. You must go and do the same and lay down our lives for each other. Let's not walk away from this moment going, yeah, good, God died on the cross. Praise God. Amen. Where's my hot cross bun? <laughs> Let's reflect. What has his death done for us? Yeah, it's one new eternal life, but that's not the issue to God. That's, that's not the issue. It's one, his presence with you. He did this because he wanted to be with you. If you're with him, you're with him forever. That's it. Eternity is not something you're trying to achieve. It's a reality of being in him. What we want, what we need, what we desperately need is his presence in this life and the next. And what this world needs. <laughs> more than a Christian prime minister, more than some political sudden change that suddenly everything seemed, no, what it needs is the church equipped and enabled by his spirit to every day live not for yourself, but for others. I know it's frustrating. I know it would be super amazing if suddenly we could just have some great Christian leader suddenly come to Christ and everything gets changed, but that's not how it's going to happen. It will be harder. It will be slower and it will cost us a lot more. But in that cost, what the irony is, this is what Jesus promised, you find out that when you let go of your life, you suddenly find it. Some of you hate going to work on Monday. You hate it. I'm talking about something that will radically change your existence Monday to Friday. You will have a new purpose in your life each and every day. Some of you have even questioned your life. Why am I alive? Is it even worth it? Because you have been sold a lie that said the goal in this life is to somehow get salvation. No, the goal in this life is to somehow become his people again and live for something far greater than you've ever lived for. And this is the promise of the cross that through his redemption, we can bring redemption. So I'm going to ask us to pray. I'm going to get us to just reflect. It's 11.33. I've done very well this morning. And your hot cross buns, aren't they hot? That hot anyway, so they're not getting any colder. Let's be honest. But we're going to do this more often in our services. We're actually going to pause. Now, we used to, in many Pentecostal and evangelical traditions, we would pause and we would then lead people through what's called the sinner's prayer. 
And then we'd ask you to lift your hand and then we'd count how many of them lifted their hand and we'd get very excited and enthused and say, amen. But we're not gonna do that that much anymore. What we're gonna do is give everyone, everyone, every single week when we gather and when we gather in homes, an opportunity to pause and reflect and think, what does this mean for me? Now, for some of you here today, it might mean accepting Jesus, your Lord and Saviour, for the very first time or the first time in a long time. And at the end of this moment, we will make sure you know what to do with that, how you can take this step. But as a church, that's not our aim for you. It's not, again, a one-off prayer. Our aim is that we all would be made into his disciples and make this thing I'm talking about a reality for all of us. So we're going to start here today and I'm going to do it with you. Because if you want a perfect pastor, I'm sorry, this is not the church for you. But if you want a pastor who is like you on his knees saying, Lord Jesus, transform me, change me, help me renew, be renewed and reflect you better, you bet you're cute, whatever's. That's me. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.